true terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Human Monsters, a history of executions. Since time immemorial, any civilization on our blue planet had to enforce laws, rules, and regulations to ensure the safety of all within that society. When someone breaks the law, the consequences are punishment in one form or another. To not only teach the offender a lesson, but also to show others what would happen if the law is not followed. Punishment could vary from fines, community service, 
having certain privileges such as driving taken away, and even in some countries, physical punishment in the form of lashes. More severe forms of punishment are jail time, and in the most extreme cases, executions. Capital punishment, or the death penalty, is the state-sanctioned killing of any person found guilty of breaking certain laws in certain countries. Felonies and crimes vary from country to country and state to state, but some crimes, such as those committed against the state or crimes committed against humanity, call for the death penalty. Issues surrounding the death penalty and executions are hot potato subjects, and people tend to get just as passionate as when they discuss politics or religion, when anything related to it is discussed. Some call it justifiable homicide, some legal murder, and some feel it's the greatest infringement on human rights ever committed. In our approximately 30,000 years in existence, there has, especially during the last couple of centuries, been a huge reduction in death as a punishment. Currently, 55 countries still have the death penalty in place, and in the United States of America, 27 states still use executions as punishments for severe crimes. Some of these countries who still implement capital punishment also will turn a blind eye to torture before a prisoner is killed in 2022. About 2,016 people have been executed across the world, according to the United Nations. Since countries such as North Korea do not readily disclose state statistics, it's unlikely that this number is accurate. China has the highest number of executions, no surprise there, with over a thousand being reported, followed by Egypt, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. The main divide in the debate about the death penalty orbits around whether it is a true deterrent to commit major crimes or not, and whether the methods of executions are indeed humane. Many of us who are true crime fiends have followed a case where a fortifying crime is committed and without having any medical education, you can tell the person is desperately mentally ill. The court then has the accused committed under psychiatric care and once the person is lucid, he is, if found guilty, sentenced to death or life without parole. I personally find it disturbing that there is no categorical ban on executions on people with mental illness. A handful of states will allow it as a defense, but statistically it is almost impossible for a defendant to win a case on this defense. Incarceration without rehabilitation means nothing, and currently with overcrowded prisons, understaffed facilities, and an ever-shrinking budget. All a country can do is warehouse its most dangerous felons. Governments want to ensure the right to life, but not the quality. It's a sticky debate that should be had more often, but it only seems to appear on the agenda near an election. 
Let's have a look at the history of executions and let us know on social media if we, pardon the pun, executed this episode well. For a species that is supposed to be at the top of the food chain, uh, human beings were not exactly made for primal living. We have too little hair to keep us warm. Our teeth and nails are useless when it comes to defending ourselves. And the only thing protecting us from leaking to death is a very thin layer of skin. In essence, we are literally bags of bone, blood, and meat, just waiting to get a puncture. Yet, despite this flimsy design, people can be often very difficult to kill, despite the thousands of ways we have invented to do so. Not that I've tried it myself. In today's episode, we will be having a look at a brief history of executions, methods used to enforce capital punishment, and how it often can go wrong, and despite having had millennia to perfect this form of punishment, it appears that people still seem to not get it right all the time. It seems that only during the last century, public executions have been done away with. It was originally done in such a way to warn anyone that the fate of the condemned would befall them if they chose to break the law of the land. Executions were usually done in a communal space, such as town squares, and especially during the medieval times, the notice of the pending execution was relayed by ballot song. People, young and old, would gather from far and wide, and what is for those involved in the execution serious work, for the locals and travelers, it was an opportunity to have a festival for celebration. Booze would fuel an already excited crowd as peddlers tried to sell trinkets and food, while those who lived in apartments or houses with a good view rented out their dwellings to those who wanted to be in the best possible vantage point to see the spectacle. Needless to say, it was one of the few forms of entertainment to especially peasants, and usually a commercial and financial opportunity. Unfortunately, these events, regardless of how well they were policed, would result in chaos with drunken brawls and an unruly crowd. Rulers of countries all eventually realized that making an example of a lawbreaker by publicly executing them was a pointless exercise and, with time, Executions would be held in private. Fun fact, the origin of the word fuck is that it's an acronym for, for unlawful carnal knowledge. A sign spelling out the letters fuck was written on a sign and held over the condemned person as they were led to the execution chamber for some kind of moral transgression. The first we know of executions were stoning and clubbing. In both methods, the victim will die from blunt force trauma. Stoning or lapidation is a cumbersome way of killing someone, and shockingly enough, it's still practiced in at least five countries around the world. 
although none have been reported in recent times. The first recorded incidence of this kind of execution was in 1800 BC, when a man who was accused of using magic was ordered to take his own life. Crimes you could sentence to death for varied through the ages from murder, arson, and adultery to theft or causing a disturbance. Being buried alive or impaled alive were two methods that were favored in mostly Africa and Asia. One of the most interesting forms of punishment appeared during the Roman Empire for the crime of murder of a parent was to put the prisoner in a sack with a dog, a viper, a rooster, and an ape, and throwing it into the water. The father of modern philosophy, Socrates, was ordered to drink poison for his execution, but at the turn of the century, prisoners were mostly killed by beheading, handing, stoning, and crucifixion. In ancient times, people were also crucified, the most famous of which, of course, was Jesus Christ. Burning people alive at the stake became very popular during the Middle Ages, and especially during the Salem witch trials. But as humans, these methods appeared not to be gruesome enough. The breaking wheel, or Catherine's wheel, was used to break the prisoner's bones and then eventually bludgeoning them to death. This was still in use during the 19th century. The rack is a torture device constructed from a wooden frame and slightly raised from the ground with a roller at each end. The prisoner's limbs are tied to the rollers and as the interrogation proceeds, a handle is turned that would stretch and pull the limbs, causing excruciating pain as he or she is literally torn limb from limb. People were also boiled alive or tied to a tree and covered with honey to allow fire ants and other critters to kill the prisoners slowly. If you were so inclined as to want to award first prize for the worst form of execution ever, I believe being hanged, drawn, and quartered would win hands down. The first recorded person to suffer this cruel form of execution was a man named William Maurice, who was accused of piracy. He was first drawn to his fate by horses along cobblestone roads. His limbs were then tied to four different horses, who would on command all run in four different directions. This gruesome method was specifically used during the 14th century on male prisoners who committed high treason in the Kingdom of England. The convicted traitor was fastened to a wooden panel or hurdle and drawn by horse to his place of execution. Once there, he was hanged, but not to death. He was then castigated, disemboweled, his intestines set alight, beheaded, and all his limbs removed. 
his remains would then be displayed in prominent places to warn other countrymen what fate would befall them if they decided to betray their king and country. There's a myth that executioners were hooded figures, but this is mostly untrue. Prisoners would often have their heads covered, especially when they were hanged. This was done to shield the onlookers from the ghastly bulging eyes and protruding tongue on a discolored face. The youngest people ever to be hanged for their crimes were two boys aged seven and ten who had stolen a loaf of bread. The prisoners were often paraded through the town or city and in many cases were allowed to wear their smartest clothes, which the executioner would inherit after the deed was done. The condemned were allowed to make speeches or even sing songs before their death and nobility would often tip the executioner in order for him to make sure the death was as painless as possible. The appointment of an executioner was usually someone whose relative was an executioner. Especially in the last century, not even their family would know what they went off to do. Both Albert Pierpoint, who was a hangman in England from 1932 to 1955, famous executioner of Maxi Germans after the Second World War, had both a father and an uncle as an executioner. His father, however, had trouble dealing with his position and became an alcoholic. Albert's uncle warned him not to drink before a handing, and instead Albert would offer the prisoner a stiff drink before the noose was tied around his neck. Albert became the most prolific hangman of his country by executing 432 men and women during his appointment. Hanging was a popular method of enforcing capital punishment in many countries. There are different methods of hanging, with a short drop entailing a rope tied to a tree branch and the prisoner being placed on either a bucket or a wagon. As the bucket is removed or the wagon pulled away, the prisoner will then slowly be strangled to death. The standard drop involves a drop of between six and eight feet and is executed on a scaffold. The prisoner's weight and height are all calculated to ensure that the prisoner snaps his neck in that sweet spot between his C2 and C3 vertebrae. Too long and the rope will become a ligature and throttle the prisoner to death. If it is too short, it will snap the head right off the body. A man by the name of John Smith hung for 15 minutes and would not die. He was set free and returned to his position on the town council, where he later helped in the conviction and hanging of a nemesis by the name of George Kendall. Beheading and hanging would be the predominant methods of execution during the 18th and 19th century. Beheading as a form of execution also has a long history. Through the ages, most countries would deem it a cruel, barbaric, and uncivilized method of execution, although the practice is still prevalent in some countries in the Middle East. 
There seems to have been three methods of beheading, namely by sword, by axe, or by guillotine. For the purposes of this episode, we will focus on beheading during the reign of King Henry VIII, who went from hero to zero in a matter of years. The reason for this radical change is due to a terrible jousting accident Henry had during which he not only received a deep wound in his leg, but also his third consecutive concussion, which left him unconscious for two hours. On the 24th of January, 1536, the handsome king took a popular part in one of his favorite sports, but on this day, the once confident, charming young king had a fall that would change the course of history. Before the event, Henry was revered and popular in an England that was united for the first time in many centuries. He was an eager sportsman whose rule was wise and just. At the time of the accident, Henry was married to Anne Berlin, and she was pregnant with his second child. The injuries from the fall were so serious that the physician warned Anne that he might die from them. He would recover, but it would change everything about the king. Henry had married Anne despite the opposition from the church, who would not give him a divorce from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. He overcame this hurdle by breaking free from the Roman Catholic Church and declaring himself the head of the Church of England, and would give birth to a girl, namely Elizabeth I. But due to the shock of Henry's fall and grim prognosis, she miscarried the boy the king so eagerly wanted. Four months after the fall, Anne was summoned to appear before the council on charges of adultery and incest, which both carried the death penalty. Her pleading and denials fell on deaf ears, because Henry had already set his sights firmly on his next wife-to-be, Jane Seymour. Two weeks later, after being locked up in the Tower of London, she would be accused of treason, and her marriage was annulled. The only kindness the king showed her was that her public execution would be done by sword, and thus Anne Berlin became the first queen of England to be executed. The sword used was a long sword that carried much weight, which ensured that the head would be removed in one swift swing, and it was a cleaner alternative to the axe. He would also not display her head on a spike outside the Tower of England, the way beheaded prisoners usually were. Henry would, in all, be married six times, but with each year after the accident, he became more neurotic, paranoid, unreasonable, cruel, and vindictive. He would eventually die in his early fifties, so obese that it took 16 pallbearers to carry his casket to its last resting place. His leg, which had become infected and would ooze pus and surround him with a sour and foul odor, likely from septicemia or diabetes, was listed as one of the causes of his death. Elizabeth I, who would take over the reign from her father, did not show any kind of kindness 
when she had her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, beheaded. Elizabeth had always been suspicious of her cousin's loyalty, but after holding her captive for 18 years for an assassination attempt, Elizabeth had her beheaded. On the 8th of February, 1587, Mary was led to the chopping block after being stripped of her clothing. I have encountered different accounts about what happened, but it appears that the executioner had had a couple of drinks before the beheading to give him Dutch courage. Sorry to the Dutch. She maintained her dignity as she placed her head on the block and was reported to have not moved as the executioner missed his mark, wounding the royal. According to some sources, all she muttered was, Sweet Jesus! It took a couple of whacks, but finally the head came off, and as the executioner held it for the crowd to see, her little dog escaped from her undergarments and sat on her mistress's bloody, headless corpse. This gruesome form of execution bothered Joseph Guillotine so much that he decided to patent a device to make this form of capital punishment more humane. The guillotine, as we know it, now has in one form or another been used during the Middle Ages. During the 18th century, he created the device which was predominantly used during the French Revolution, which saw thousands of prisoners fall victim to the sharp blade that would drop down in one smooth motion and remove the head from the rest of the body. Miniatures of this method of execution were sold to children at the event and afterwards. Scientists would conduct experiments on the heads, which some might say be still conscious up to 10 seconds after removal. Another fact is that it was used during Nazi Germany's short existence. The last person to be executed by this method was in France in 1977, the year of my birth. And the National Razor, as it was known, was finally done away with in 1981 when France did away with capital punishment. To date, the most famous person to die from the guillotine was Louis XVII and his wife, Marie Antoinette. Onlookers were not happy with the method at first because it lacked the drama and gore they were accustomed to. Death by firing squad has always been a popular method of execution and is still practiced in North Korea and China. This method is deemed by many as the most effective, whether it be carried out by a single person or a firing squad. The gas chamber, which is still used in three states in the USA, had its origins in General Okendun, who developed the method first in 1803 during the Hessian War. He filled ship's cargo holds with sulfur dioxide in order to kill prisoners of war. The most infamous use of this method of execution was, of course, the German Nazis, who sent millions of Jews and anyone who opposed the government to their death by this method. So far, it appears that only the USA has three states who still practice this method of execution, 
and the last person to be executed by a gas chamber was Gary Ray Bowles, also known as the I-95 Killer, in 2019. Those who have been able to escape North Korea have, however, said that this method is still practiced there. But, like everything else about North Korea, no one knows except them. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back, not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened in OJ Simpson and look what happened in Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. As implemented in the United States, the gas chamber is the most expensive, most time-consuming, most complicated, and most dangerous form of capital punishment. It's also almost impossible to stop in the case of a stay of execution. The prisoner is trapped into a chair and an airtight chamber, which is sealed. The executioner then activates a mechanism that drops potassium cyanide pellets into a bath underneath the prisoner's chair, which contains sodium cyanide. The ensuing chemical reaction creates a gas that is lethal. The prisoner is encouraged to breathe deeply to expedite the process, but often as he or she watches the gas fill the chamber, the prisoner will convulse, drool, defecate, and urinate. During the 19th century, the search for a more humane way of executing prisoners was more and more in demand. In 1881, a dentist and steamboat engineer by the name of Alfred Southwick 
got an idea after watching an old drunk named George Smith electrocute himself on a generator. He was so impressed by the incredibly quick way death occurred that he constructed a device which he first tried out at the Buffalo SPCA to euthanize animals. Before this, horses were hanged and dogs were drowned, so electrocution did seem like a better alternative. After a year, he started publishing his work in medical journals and started to advocate for electrocution as a cleaner and faster method of death. Because he was familiar with the dentist chair, it was the obvious and most practical structure for his device. If you have a fear like many do of a dentist, you are probably as unsurprised as I am that a dentist chair could not only look more threatening, but also guarantee your death. Southwick was connected and took his new invention after a couple of adjustments and improvements to a friend of his, New York Senator Jimmy McMillan, who liked the idea and took it as a proposal to the governor. There was a definite interest in the contraption, but as a committee who was established to explore the pros and cons, the question remained what type of electricity they should use. Electricity was still a new invention, and the two main contributors, George Westerhouse and Thomas Edison, were battling it out over whose current was the best. Both had invented different ways of delivering electricity. George believed his AC current, also known as alternating current, derived from Tesla's invention of alternating currents, was the best, while Edison believed that his direct current was far more suitable. The fight between these two gentlemen as to whose invention would drive the electric chair was not only no-holds-barred and epic, but resulted in many, many different animals being used as test subjects. Edison went as far as to hire a PR company to warn people that George's invention was dangerous, since there had already been a couple of fires as a result of his invention. His PR team even took the show on the road, stopping at towns, buying up animals and displaying the macabre and lethal result of electrocution. They used not only dogs and cats, but calves, horses, and even an orangutan. There is a myth that Edison had an elephant electrocuted, but the true story is that in 1903, Topsy the Condemned Elephant had killed a man after he had burned her with his cigar, and that the owners had decided that electrocution was the best way to kill her. I do believe that the video of this execution is still available online. Edison was never one to shy away from a photo opportunity, and made sure his presence was known at the execution of the massive gray animal. As the battle continued, electrocution as a method of execution was approved, and on the 8th of May, 1908, the bill was successfully passed through Congress. Despite his efforts, Edison lost to George's AC current. He would come to regret this milestone once he tried to introduce his current to households, despite its notoriety for being used in executions. 
He refused to fulfill an order from the three prisons who required the necessary generators. But Edison, ever the opportunist, took the job by ordering the generators under a fake name and supplying them to the prisons. The first person to be electrocuted was an illiterate salesman named William Kimler from Buffalo, who killed his wife. Thomas Edison would even appear on his behalf during the appeal process, stating that electrocution was not cruel and inhumane, but rather very effective. Despite appeals by his very expensive lawyer, who was secretly paid by George Wester, as William was strapped to the seat, he was first jolted with 700 volts for 17 seconds. This was followed by a second charge with 1,030 volts, ensuring Kimmler's death. The entire room was engulfed in the smell of cooked bacon and burnt hair. And to this day, it's ill-advised to touch a prisoner after they've been electrocuted because the flesh is certainly cooked and piping hot to the touch. Smoke also rose from his head, which upset certain onlookers. The first electric chair was made out of oak, and as the condemned was tied to the chair with straps, one electrode was attached to a shaven part of the prisoner's head and another to the prisoner's spine. The electrodes were metal discs fitted with rubber that held a sponge soaked in saline solution, which aided in the conduction of electricity through the body with minimal resistance. The number of voltages sent through the condemned prisoner is also important. Too little and all that happens is that the prisoner is tortured too much and the brain will cook in the skull. The sponge is also very important. Make it too wet and the current will be interfered with and make it too dry and, as we all learn in the green mile, the head, hair and all will catch fire. With time, leather straps were replaced because they burned the prisoner. Conducting gel would be applied on the three places the conductors were placed. The prisoner will most likely die from asphyxiation since the respiratory system is paralyzed. The person electrocuted is conscious the whole time. The hood is used at this time to shield onlookers from the horror of his or her eyes popping out from the first jolt of electricity. By 1910, this new method of execution had been adopted by four states, with each one personalizing their chairs with headrests, body restraints, and even a grate beneath the chair where bodily fluids could accumulate. Each state also named their chairs. Alabama had the Yellow Mama, New York had Old Sparky, and Louisiana had Gruesome Gertie. To date, almost 5,000 people have been killed with this method of execution, and it happens to be the one that also has the lowest rates of botched executions. The only method that has a 100% success is the firing squad. It is also important to note that no doctors would be at any executions, including lethal injections, hangings, electrocutions, or the gas chamber. This is because of the Hippocratic Oath, which is, in essence, above all, do no harm. Their belief that all life is precious and should be saved 
just doesn't gel at all within that framework. When things go wrong in an execution involving shocking the condemned to death, things can go terribly wrong. In 1946, a man named Willie Francis had the misfortune of having one of the officials overseeing his execution show up drunk at work that day. Due to his bad rigging of the contraption, as the switch was pulled, Willie screamed that he could feel everything, and the execution was stopped. He would later say that his mouth had filled with the taste of cold peanut butter and that the pain was unbearable. He was lucky to have been able to walk away because many of the condemned who survived would just be strapped back in the chair to ride the lightning one more time. In 1936, a woman called Mary Creighton was sentenced to death for killing her lover's wife. This was not her first murder, because police suspected her in the poisoning of three of her family members as well. Mary tried her damnness to qualify for the insanity defense, but to no avail. On the hour of her execution, she fainted, but the show must go on, and guards picked her up, took her to the chamber, strapped her in, and flipped the switch. A man named Harry Holmes dressed up in a Santa Claus suit and killed two cops in 1939. Needless to say, it did not work. The insanity defense actually never works. He would be dragged kicking and screaming to the chair and died with no witnesses. Ruth Snyder, dubbed the Granite Woman, was sentenced to death in 1926. She had convinced her lover, a Corvette salesman, to kill her husband for insurance money. She had apparently already tried to kill her husband seven times before this by various methods. The final time they tried, they bashed his head in while he was passed out drunk and then strangled him to death just to make sure the deed was done. Her lover then bound her and made the attack appear like a robbery. The police, however, knew something was wrong when all of the items Ruth had reported stolen were found still in the house. While on death row, Ruth caught the eye of a prison cook called Dummy Doan. He fell head over heels in love with the granite woman. He would sneak love notes to her and she would respond, hiding the contraband in lunch boxes and underneath trays. Despite her accepting his eventual proposal, the lovers were never meant to be, because on the 12th of January 1928, both Ruth and her former lover were scheduled to be executed. During Ruth's execution, a New York Times journalist managed to sneak a camera in and took one of the most haunting and terrifying photos ever taken of Ruth Snyder in mid-execution. This photo was published on the front page of the New York Times the following day. It's still available online if you want to see it. On the 10th of August, 1982, J. Copula's execution went terribly awry. The Virginia Department of Corrections never released the details, but an attorney present would later tell of how it took two extra 55-second jolts to kill the prisoner. Frank's head and leg caught on fire, and you could hear and smell the sizzling flesh as the room filled with smoke. 
There are many such examples of how this method can go wrong, and this is why there was always a search for a better method of execution. This is why the lethal injection became an option at later facilities. Lethal injection was first used in the United States of America in 1982. It has since been adopted by China, the Philippines, Taiwan, Thailand, and Vietnam. Currently, it is used in the USA in Florida, Kentucky, South Carolina, Oklahoma, and Tennessee as a secondary method. States have, however, lately had to scramble to get hold of the drugs used in this method of execution, but it still remains the most popular method of execution, especially because it is one of the least traumatic to view. Once the prisoner has been condemned and has exhausted all his appeals, he or she has moved to a room called the Death Watch near the execution chamber. Visits are allowed more often and treatment in general becomes a little better. The prisoner eats his last meal, has visits with his spiritual advisor and attorney, and a shower to prepare for the procedure. Sometimes the prisoner is given a sedative to help them cope. Generally, the warden and the chaplain stays with the prisoner unless they request to not have them around. The witnesses usually arrive before the prisoner enters the actual death chamber, and no interaction is allowed. The first physical step is to connect the prisoner to the EKG machine. At the predetermined time, they will move the prisoner into the execution chamber, in full view of the witnesses, with a glass partition separating them. The role of the witnesses is to ensure total transparency in the procedures, but it also gives closure to some of the loved ones of the victims. People can apply to be witnesses if there are not enough people to witness the execution. In the 90s, there was such a surge in the number of executions that the prison would advertise in newspapers for people to apply as witnesses. As mentioned before, no doctors will attend the execution. It's a very solemn and quiet affair with every minute running on a schedule. Some prisoners are allowed to walk in while others are strapped to a gurney. The prisoner is then rigged up to the IV tubes. These tubes will inject into the prisoner's system the lethal dose from another room. At this point, the prisoner can make a final statement if he chooses. It used to be a three-drug cocktail, but this is not always a practical concoction to get. The three drugs were a paralyzing agent, anesthetic agent, and a toxic agent. But due to circumstances, for instance, in 2013, only one drug was used, which was pentabarbital, which is an anesthetic. It's illegal now to use it because the manufacturer, who is Danish, was unhappy with the drug being used to kill people. States were banned from purchasing the drug, and the DEA even raided correctional centers because suppliers started to warn countries that they would refuse to sell the product to their hospitals. Propofol, which is what sent Michael Jackson to Neverland, was also used 
But once again, suppliers threatened to cut the USA off completely from the medication, which is essentially what doctors use to put patients under during surgery. Another problem is that if you were going under an, for an operation, 100 milligrams would be used, whereas during the lethal injection, 5 grams or 5,000 milligrams is used. Due to the fact that the drugs used are so difficult to obtain, generics have been used with dire results. Midolazam, which is a sedative and not an anesthetic, is used as a replacement in many states, which means the prisoner is cognizant of what is happening to him. The debate around the paralyzing agent, which is the second step, revolved around the fact that it made the prisoner seem relaxed and as if he or she almost wanted to die as the witnesses looked on. It is, however, deemed inhumane not to administer this agent, since the prisoner will feel pain and discomfort. The third part of the process, which entails administering potassium chloride, which is basically to ensure the person is dead. In some states, this poison is not even used on pets, but used on condemned prisoners. Death from beginning to end should occur within 5 to 18 minutes after administering the deadly cocktail. It's not unheard of that officials cannot find a vein, especially on those who had used drugs intravenously. Another problem is that those administering the procedure often have hardly any medical experience. Not finding a vein is the main reason why this method of execution is botched. If the drugs are pushed too quickly, it can also cause tremendous pain. On the 10th of May, 1989, in Texas, Stephen McCoy reacted so badly to the cocktail entering his body that his reaction caused a woman to faint, knocking over another person. As he lay on the gurney, Stephen was heaving, gasping, arching his back off the gurney, and was clearly in a lot of pain and distress. It's presumed that the drugs might have been injected in a larger dose and that Stephen might have had a reaction to that. Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. murder. It's called Slaycation. And it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone 
horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorn, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across. But nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. All this talking about dying has made me a bit peckish. Which brings me to the next subject. Most countries and some states in the USA have done away with a prisoner's request for his or her favorite last meal. But it's fascinating to see what some of them have chosen. The meal is usually presented to the prisoner a day or two before the execution and all products must be locally sourced. Serial killer Fritz Harmon just asked for a cup of coffee and a cigar. Peter Curtin asked for a bottle of wine and fried potatoes, of which he had two servings. Saddam Hussein had chicken and rice with hot water and honey. Stanley Tukey Williams, who was the leader of the Crips gang, only had oatmeal. William Bonin went big and ordered two large pepperoni pizzas three servings of ice cream with chocolate sauce, and three six-packs of Coke and Pepsi. John Wayne Gacy requested a pound of strawberries, a bucket of KFC, 12 fried prawns, french fries, 
and a Diet Coke. You'd think, you know, with him about to die, he might as well go with the regular shit. I would like to end this episode with some famous last words of prisoners before they were executed. John Wayne Gacy, again, left this mortal coil with the words, Kiss my ass! Ted Bundy cried and prayed and asked his pastor to send his love to his family. Retaining his sense of humor, George Apple stated, Well, gentlemen, you are about to see a baked apple. James French said, How about this for a headline for tomorrow's paper? The following is a TED Talk given by professor and anti-death penalty activist Nick McEwen. So first, some facts. There are 2.2 million people in prison in this country. 5% of the people in the world live in the US, yet 25% of its prisoners. In fact, if you live in the US, you're five times more likely to go to prison than if you lived in the UK, where I'm from, 10 times more likely than if you lived in Germany. Heck, you're actually more likely to go to prison in this country than if you lived in North Korea, and four times as likely if you lived in China. This hasn't always been the case. Mass incarceration is something that is new. In 1980, there were half a million people in prison in this country. That number has quadrupled in those years. And you've got to ask yourself why. If you think about it, we live in the country that imprisons more of its people than any other country in peacetime in history. So mass incarceration is truly a modern American phenomenon. This isn't a liberal or a conservative issue. So when President Obama recently called for an overhaul in our criminal justice system, he made the observation that there are some kind of strange bedfellows, Newt Gingrich and Van Jones. The Americas, Americans for Tax Reform, a conservative group, and the ACLU. And as well as the Koch brothers, who are also calling for criminal justice reform, and the NAACP. At the end of the day, the criminal justice system is a huge, expensive, and failing government program. It's failing to even provide any semblance of equal justice for all, especially to the poor and the people of color. There are one million African Americans in prison in this country today, six times the rate of whites. But just think about this. If that trend continues, one in three black men born today will go to prison. So if we do think about it, we know in our hearts there are big problems with this system. And many, people's, many people are calling for, for change. It's a big, big government system that has run amok. Most of us look the other way when we hear these stories or we read these stories of people locked up in solitary confinement for years on end in a concrete box just a few feet wide with their brains 
gradually turning into vegetables. But it's harder to look the other way, much harder to look the other way, when you know that there are innocent people being locked up. And of course, we know that. So there have been over 300 people who have been exonerated from prison because of new DNA evidence or new tests upon existing DNA evidence. Between them, those 300 people spent 4,500 years in prison for a crime they did not commit. Whether they are sitting in prison, sitting in solitary confinement, or sitting on death row, there are thousands more people, for sure, who are in prison today who did not commit the crime that they were being punished for. <clears throat> Ricky Jackson was 18 years old when he was sent to prison in 1975, and it was for the murder of a man by the name of Harold Frank, a businessman in Cleveland, Ohio. So the authorities based their case solely on the statement of uh, somebody called uh, Edward Vernon. Edward was 12 years old. It turns out that the story that Edward had told the police and then in court was made up. It wasn't made up by him, it was made up by detectives and prosecutors who fed him the story and then threatened him that he would suffer imprisonment or his family members would suffer imprisonment if he didn't tell that story in court. During a court hearing a couple of years ago, when he was 50 years old, he described how he had been coerced into telling this story. When Ricky, shown here on the left, went to prison, Gerald Ford was the president and the Vietnam War was just over. So Ricky was released last year. He was fully exonerated from the crime, but he'd spent 39 and a half years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. In that time, he spent time on death row. He thought he was gonna be killed. He had to smell the burning flesh of the man that was taken away from the cell next to him and was executed, and he was told that he would be next. Rick is now 58 years old, and I'm sure, like me, you hope he has 40 more years or more of his life remaining. And he's chosen to spend that time going around telling his story. He's been and he has forgiven Edward Vernon, and he's devoting his life to helping those people who are left behind in prison who are innocent and trapped in our prisons. But despite what you see on TV, the people who are freed from prison, they're not typically freed because of new DNA evidence. That's the one that we see on the TV most, common, most commonly. Most of the innocent people who are, are, are released or exonerated, it's because of prosecutorial misconduct. These are overzealous prosecutors, district attorneys, judges, Many of them elected, many of them are underqualified, all of them are grossly overworked. Evidence is hidden, juries are rigged, confessions are forced, and all too often the authorities just want to convict somebody, anybody, so that they can close the case. It's not really that surprising that whenever you have a big system, 
that is run by a group of humans, people like us, making important decisions about the lives of others. They're going to make mistakes, that's for sure. It's inevitable. With such an enormous creaking prison system, those mistakes are going to be more common. You're bound to have some number of crooked cops, incompetent prosecutors and judges who just want to look tough on crime. Then just a small percentage is enough to make this happen. <clears throat> so we will always see people who are going to cause problems within the system. We're bound to have people who are locked up who, it turns out, were innocent all along. So it's bad enough to lock up an innocent person and then later find out that they were, in fact, innocent. But it's important to remember that this is the very same system, and these are the very same people who are deciding if we execute them. And once you execute someone, if they turn out to be innocent, there's no going back. Let's talk about Carlos de Luna. Carlos was executed for the murder of Wanda Lopez. She was stabbed to death while working at a gas station in Corpus Christi in Texas on February the 4th, 1983. She was 24 years old. Carlos was executed for the crime. The problem is, Carlos was innocent. There were two men named Carlos in the vicinity that day. An eyewitness tied Carlos de Luna, shown here, to the murder. The trial lasted six days, and Carlos was executed six years later. It was a routine case. Nobody thought that it was exceptional. Barely appeared in the newspapers. Almost by chance, Columbia Law School took a closer look at this particular case and concluded that de Luna was, in fact, innocent and that they actually executed the wrong Carlos. There's a great book describing this case. De Luna was, based, was put to death based on the eyewitness identification at night with no corroborating forensic evidence at all. We now know that Wanda Lopez was murdered by Carlos Hernandez, who looked so similar to De Luna that his own family members and his own sister mistook a photograph when seen of the two Carlos's together. De Luna had never committed a violent crime before, but Hernandez, his history of crime included crimes very similar to the way in which Wanda Lopez was killed. How could that happen? Hernandez even bragged to his friends in Corpus Christi that he was the one that had killed her and that the wrong Carlos was in jail. The police said they didn't know Carlos Hernandez. Turns out he was a police informant, and this was found out later. The police never even interviewed him. Yet in court, when Carlos de Luna said it was the other Carlos, they said he was imagining it. In fact, the term was he was a phantom of de Luna's imagination. They framed Carlos de Luna, and he's dead. Here's a list of other people who were innocent that are known to have been executed in this country. It's a partial list. There will be many more. Um, we don't have time to talk about them today. So how did I get involved in this? I'm an engineering professor. Why, why, why would I get involved in something like this? Well, when I was at college in England, I volunteered for Amnesty International and, like many other people, wrote letters on behalf of prisoners of conscience, men and women around the world, who were imprisoned because of their political beliefs. 
And I learned that with that small effort, it really was a very small effort, you could make a difference. Because lo and behold, two of the people that we'd written on behalf of showed up in my hometown from South America. It was quite a surprise to me, but I learned that if you stand up, speak out, and say something, even a little something, it can make quite a difference. The second time I spoke up was when I saw this ECG machine on TV. So it's a normal ECG machine used in many hospitals around the world. It was built by Hewlett Packard in Germany, and the year was 1988. I was watching a BBC documentary called 14 Days in May, and it followed the two weeks leading up to the execution of Edward Earl Johnson. And uh, this was in Mississippi. He was imprisoned uh, for the murder of a white police officer. His death sentence was based on a confession, a confession that was obtained once by the side of the road by police officers while he was being transported between two prisons. He immediately said that it had been forced and coerced and retracted it. There was no other evidence. So it followed his, his time up the last 14 days until he was executed. Uh, it's a little bit hard to find this now, but it's still available on YouTube if you're, if you're interested in watching 14 days in, in May. So he was killed in the Mississippi gas chamber on uh, 20th of May, 1987. And just a few days before that, an alibi, a woman came up to the prison gates to say that actually she hadn't known about this case, but she was with him at the time of the murder. She was sent away and told to mind her own business. The movie shows the gas chamber being prepared for his execution, and it also shows this particular Hewlett-Packard ECG machine. And that was used to just to confirm that the prisoner was dead. I was 25 years old at the time, and I worked for Hewlett-Packard in the UK. And I knew that this ECG machine was built in Germany, and that it was illegal in Europe to export equipment for use in the death penalty. You probably know why that is, because there's no country in Europe that has had the death penalty for decades now. And in fact, if you want to join the EU, you can't do so if you still use capital punishment. The documentary was never shown on the US television, but I wrote to David Packard, who was still alive at the time, to ask why it is that Hewlett Packard allows its product to be part of such a process. Not only because it's illegal, but hey, this guy was probably innocent. So to my surprise, he wrote back. I got a handwritten letter, and also to my surprise and to my knowledge, HP then stopped shipping ECG equipment to the US for use in the death penalty. Again, I learned that by speaking out, just a little bit, I just wrote a letter, that's all I did, you can make quite a difference. But as I learned more about the death penalty in the US, this was from England, I sort of realized that, that as I read more about it, how hidden, secret, and unspoken it is. How often do you talk about it? How often do I talk about it? How often do people talk about what's, what's actually happening? And when you look a bit more, you realize how arbitrary and ad hoc this system is. So 105 countries have abolished the death penalty worldwide, most recently Suriname and Mongolia. There are 64, 60 more uh, that are classified by the United Nations as de facto abolitionists because they haven't used the death penalty in at least 10 years. So that leaves 28 countries that still use capital punishment.
And one of them, of course, is the US. That's us. The US is number five worldwide on that list. So you might be wondering, who's the other nine? Are they the members of the G7? Are they the other wealthy countries? Are they the other countries known for being leaders of democracy and justice? So the other members in that list are China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, North Korea, Vietnam, and Libya. There are bedfellows. So when we claim to be the world's policeman and the leader of the free world, I'm sorry, but no other country stands with us on this issue. So let's turn to the US in a little bit more detail. 31 US states retain the death penalty. 19 have abolished it, as well as the District of Columbia. So since 1976, when it was reinstated by the Supreme Court, 1,423 people have been convicted. 156 have been released from death row when it was found that they were innocent. But perhaps the most troubling, troubling fact about the death penalty is how disproportionately we treat different races. Studies have time and time again shown that race plays a very big role in deciding who gets executed. A study two years ago in Washington state showed that a jury is three times more likely to recommend the death penalty for a black defendant than for a white defendant in similar crimes, three times as likely. In Louisiana, what, mo what matters most is the skin color of the victim. If you kill a white person, you're 97% more likely to be sentenced to death than if you kill a black person. In other words, when it comes to executions, white lives matter more than black lives. Okay, so that's not California. Surely that doesn't happen here. So there are currently about 3,000 people on death row in the United States. Here's a breakdown by state. Anyone know where California is on this list? Anyone know? We're at the top. So in what probably is the most liberal state in the country, the most highly educated, the most creative, the wealthiest, we put far more people onto death row than any other state in the country. In fact, if you look across the bay, you can't quite see it from here, there's San Quentin, that's where they all are. They're all housed, all 746 of them waiting to be executed. So we imposed 14 new death sentences last year. Of those, eight of them were in Riverside County alone. How can that be? Well, it turns out it's because they've got a death-hungry uh, prosecutor who just really, really wanted to put people on death row. So unfairness abounds in California. For example, Alameda County, eight times more likely to be sentenced to death than in Santa Clara. Why? Who knows? Statewide, African-Americans are sentenced to death at a rate five times higher than their proportion of the population. So a study at Santa Clara in 2005 showed that if you kill a white person in California, you're three times more likely to be sent to death than if you kill a black person, and four times more likely than if you kill a Latino. The phrase equal justice under law is engraved on the front of the US Supreme Court. 
what happened? There isn't even a semblance of equal justice under law. Whether or not you go to jail, whether or not you're sentenced to death, depends on whether you're poor, the color of your skin, the color of your victim. It even matters which county you live in. As Brian Stevenson, one of my heroes, likes to say, the opposite of poverty is not wealth, the opposite of poverty is justice. So who are we kidding about equal justice under the law? So what can you do? You can stand up and say something, and I encourage you to do so. I told you I learned that from personal experience that we can make a difference even if we just stand up and say something. It's not traditional here, particularly in the US, that at work amongst the people that we, we spend time with, that we talk about these things. That's why I'm here today to stand up and say something to you. I know I've barraged you with facts and some pretty gruesome, heart-wrenching stories, and it may be not what you expected to come and hear uh, today. But we can, and in fact, I'm very confident that we're going to stop some of this, particularly the death penalty, and I want to tell you how. There's going to be a ballot initiative in California this November to simply replace the death penalty with life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. So if we incarcerate, by mistake, an innocent person like Ricky Jackson or Carlos de Luna, at least we'll be able to release them later. Ironically, this will also save us money. Hey, double win. The state government estimates that we'll save in California $150 million per year if, instead of executing people, we were to put them in prison for life without the possibility of parole. So what can you do? Well, the good news is we're going to win. Public opinion is changing surprisingly fast, and you've seen this in some other issues in the last few years. Just four years ago, a field poll showed that 68% of California voters would prefer to speed up executions rather than replace them with life imprisonment without parole. That was four years ago. Last Friday, a week ago from yesterday, a new poll showed that number had dropped from 68 to 47, a 21% drop in people who would rather send people to, to be executed than to life imprisonment without parole. I can't tell you why that has changed, but hey, it's changed. In 2012, a ballot initiative to end the death penalty lost by 2%. So clearly, public opinion has changed by a lot more than that 2%. So in November, we will win if you turn out and vote. And I hope you do. I know many of you are now old enough to vote. Uh, stand up and say something. We can make a difference. You can make a difference. So if you'll indulge me, I want to end with a quote from Martin Luther King. Seems very appropriate in this, in this particular week. He said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate, 
Violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we would really appreciate it if you gave us feedback in the socials. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And until next week, we wish you all a happy Halloween. This episode was written by Misdemeanor. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.